Alpine is a new unit within Consensus. We were effectively the crypto economics team over at Token Foundry, and we found a lot of demand for our services. Basically, we want to build these new economies. A lot of what we're looking to do is figure out how to engineer value based on services rather than speculative value. We're focused a lot on enterprise too and seeing where the value can be driven in enterprises. The combination of uh, global computer, smart contracts, tokens, all these things are going to help drive the transaction costs down of doing business. And you're going to unlock new kinds of transactions that are going to form new markets that we couldn't even imagine before. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I interview Rocco and Wayne from Alpine Intel. They're part of Consensus, and they're a consulting group that helps enterprise companies find solutions in the blockchain space. So if you're interested in blockchain and crypto, this is a great episode to learn more about the different use cases and how it can be applied. So stay tuned. Greetings, Hacker. Ever wonder how to submit stories to Hacker Noon or check the status of your submissions? Well, wonder no more. Go to contribute.hackernoon.com. Whether you're a new writer, longtime contributor, or looking for the right place to spotlight your brand, get started with contribute.hackernoon.com. With your help, we are building Hacker Noon 2.0 to be the best place for tech professionals to publish, and it starts with a new submission flow. Head over to contribute.hackernoon.com today to claim your spot. You are Hacker Noon. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Wayne and Rocco. Hey, Wayne, tell us a bit about who you guys are and what you're working on. Sure. Uh, hi, Trent. My name is Wayne. Uh, basically, I'm part of a group at Consensus called Alpine, and uh, our goal is to build blueprints for new economies, and I'll get into what that is. Uh, my background is entrepreneurship, engineering. I've uh, built companies. Uh, I've consulted on product market fit actually finding customers, seeing how to drive revenues. Uh, that stuff really matters to me. I think sustainability is hugely important, especially in this space. Uh, and this crypto winter will just kind of underline that even more. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm interested in basically taking that kind of skill set, applying it to problems we have in this space. And because mass adoption is really where it's at and what we have to get to if this paradigm is supposedly going to you know, shake industries and provide massive economic value. So that's me, Rocco. Yeah. Uh, hey, my name is Rocco. Um, originally got my start in the space uh, playing around and trading, but I found myself as the editor-in-chief of a company called InvestFeed. Uh, I started writing for a couple of news sites in the space, including CCN, Bitcoinist. I uh, found my way to advising on communications for a couple projects. And then a friend of mine was on Wayne's team over at Consensus, and then I eventually joined. Uh, I eventually joined them, and now I'm working on strategy and content. Awesome. So can you guys tell me a little bit about how you fit into Consensus? Because for people who don't know, Consensus has like multiple divisions and a lot of startups they've invested in. There's kind of a lot going on there. Um, so what is the, the role and how did you guys kind of get involved with them? Yeah, so I've been independently consulting with a bunch of startups, helping them find customers, uh, helping them figure out how to build out the MVP, what parts of it are actually necessary to deliver value. Um, and um, I was always really fascinated with blockchain. I think it's kind of catnip for most technical people or people interested in markets. And uh, I happen to have both of those afflictions. So essentially, um, you know, like I was watching the space very closely, but all the opportunities that I had were more or less to, you know, help a shill ICO build their smart contracts to sell to 
probably investors, right? And I didn't really want to do that because I guess like, I don't know, something didn't feel right about it. Um, but here was this company actually talking to regulators in DC, figuring out, you know, how to uh, find the best guardrails moving forward. That was really attractive to me. Like, uh, you know, like how can we craft that? Maybe how can we inform the regulators and help them make better decisions uh, about the technology? Because unless, um, unless like we have clear guidelines, you know, uh, and as we've seen, um, like it's very, very difficult for entrepreneurs and other players in the space to make uh, quick movements. Mm -hmm. So that's like one of the most important enabling factors. So um, that's what um, got me to join consensus on their efforts to figure out, you know, good sales structures, uh, figuring out what business models are now enabled and working with a bunch of startups uh, because I get to do what I like doing. Uh, that is discovering how to create new forms of value through new ventures um, at a bigger scale. So that was exciting to me. Awesome. And so Alpine is mostly focused on what's kind of the, the core focus. Oh, yeah. So, yep. So basically, um, so Alpine is a new unit within consensus. Um, we were effectively the crypto economics team over at Token Foundry and we found a lot of demand for our services. Um, and basically we want to build, um, these new economies. And what I mean by that is we see a lot of these, uh, platform economies emerge, like Uber and Airbnbs, you might call them insided markets, you know, there are a lot of terms for these, but you see like new forms of transactions be unlocked because we were able to reduce the transaction cost of doing those things, right? Uh, new markets emerged, even with Airbnb, there are new companies just predicated on providing like services for the hosts to better manage multiple properties, right? There are a whole new um, facets of activities that we didn't realize before could happen actually emerging because of these paradigms. And that's really, really exciting. So trying to figure out like, how is this going to impact enterprise? How is this going to impact existing businesses? Can you leverage some of the same kind of forces, set incentives, uh, allow these new kinds of transactions to happen? You know, that was um, our um, thesis with Alpine, that the combination of uh, global computer, smart contracts, tokens, all these things are going to help drive the transaction costs down of doing business. And you're going to unlock new kinds of transactions that are going to form new markets that we couldn't even imagine before. So um, bringing this back to the real world, right? Like uh, where do you actually start implementing this in an enterprise company that already has a, a existing business model? Um, this is the kind of consulting that we offer. Uh, looking at existing business models, looking at what is uh, what are the very prominent concepts that we have in the crypto industry, and seeing like is there a way to employ these uh, so that we can make existing businesses better, more open, provide more social impact, right? Um, and even improve the Ethereum ecosystem because frankly, without adoption, you know, it's going to be dead in the water as a whole industry. So uh, really focused on that through consulting and through our consulting, we typically identify common components. Like if you're trying to pay people out or something, you want to do it appropriately. You need guardrails for payments and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. What are the common patterns that can be, you know, applicable from uh, client to client? These eventually become products, uh, and we partner with uh, spokes and companies within the consensus ecosystem to figure out how to best leverage um, everything. So, uh, so that is basically um, consulting products, and lastly, research. Um, we're always trying to see if any of these uh, crypto mechanisms that are very popular. Uh, hold any water. And when I say crypto mechanism, I don't mean something like the RSA scheme. You know, it's very overloaded. It really upsets cryptographers who are actually mathematicians, right? Um, and uh, what I mean by that is uh, a sort of an incentive setting system. Um, 
how uh, basically change in paradigm from I bet you can't guess this really large prime number to, you know, I know there's a consequence for you should you behave poorly, right? Uh, how, how do we set those up for companies? How do we set that up in a global network, et cetera? Um, and how do we like uh, comply to regulations? We're not lawyers, we don't give legal advice, but there are certain ways that you can structure products and offerings that they're far more likely to you know, comply and give your lawyers a far easier job. So um, those are a lot of our concerns across from consulting uh, products and also research. And do you have like a couple of use cases or examples uh, you know, for the audience who are listening? Like what, uh, you know, I don't know if you can name names of projects you've worked on or maybe just give an example of a product. Like, are you talking about like reward systems, like reward points in a company? Are you talking about like tokenization of digital assets or physical assets? Uh, what are some of the use cases that you guys have worked on or applied so far? Yeah, um, I'd say that like um, the big ones that people, the big industries and verticals that people are looking at are more or less also where we're looking at with some exceptions. For example, uh, financial markets uh, could see a lot of efficiency by using this. Um, one example of a project that uh, we're looking at, um, stable coins, right? A lot of people want to issue stable coins these days, but it's really important to think about why you might issue a stable coin. And uh, because like, Investors are crazy about stable coins. We've seen a lot of large sales, some refunds, but like uh, figuring out what's the real value of this. Well, um, a stable coin um, is kind of a loss leader because you're not going to put all your money into like a stable coin and hope for it to moon, right? Because like it's doing its job. It's not going to do that at all. But if you can affect some part of the system, like you're reducing transaction costs, you're reducing barrier to entry, people can have an easier time using your system, right? Mm -hmm. And you have some kind of other profit center that benefits from that, you know, that's where it starts getting interesting. So if you're a bank or something and looking to issue a stable coin, right, that's going to cost you money, you're going to take on regulatory risk, all this other stuff. How can you actually make money off of that? Well, maybe you can offer value-added services on top, such as loans. No one is really doing that right now, and there may be a need in the market. We have to go and find out if there is, right? So that's like one example of a product a project within the finance sector. Another one might have to do with companies just considering, like, I don't know, I want to do a loyalty program. Um, I, I think tokens are cool, right? Can we, can we work those two concepts together? Well, I mean, typically, if you're just doing a loyalty program with points, you don't really need a blockchain. Database works quite well for that. Uh, what, are, what are instances where a blockchain might actually be relevant? Um, you know, maybe if you have many players that all want to issue into a same kind of a loyalty program that has issues on its own, like a lot of the time it's educational and that's you know largely the job of a consultant to lay out the options help people think through stuff like does it really make sense just to mint an erc20 just so we can have a loyalty program like that or is there a better thing for my business and if the answer is no then you know we have to leave it at that and there are also plenty of um, inefficiencies especially with loyalty programs and as wayne mentioned um a lot of what we're looking to do is figure out how to uh, engineer value um based on services rather than speculative value so as you mentioned with stable coins, recently we had Basis, which uh, is set to refund investors very soon, uh, unfortunately. Um, but at the end of the day, we might think about the mechanisms behind these things, but our main focus right now is driving value capture with the services that could be built on top of these things. Yeah, and that's a great point that Rocco made about the mechanisms. Everyone's crazy about their models, right? But most of the papers that we read, uh, written by economists and game theorists, like 
you always find some assumptions there. And that's what math is good at. It's good at helping you just be very explicit about what assumptions you're making in your model. And if your assumptions hold, well, of course, the model's a good model if you can prove it. Um, but like the problem with this is that some of the assumptions are quite large. For example, most of these models are predicated on demand. And uh, you always see them refer the, I guess, the good economists who care about like having the right models there and variables, like they always label some kind of, you know, unknown demand function f of x. And uh, this basically means like, you know, are the customers going to use our product, you know, how we want them to use it. But that's like the, you know, multi-million or billion dollar question that all entrepreneurs try really, really hard to get right. So it's very difficult to take that for granted. The analogy I like to use is like you can make your perfect mathematical system or something um, and it's kind of like designing a very efficient water wheel, which is great, but if there's no river nearby, right, there's nothing that's going to actually fuel the machine. Mm. Uh, and that's why it's so important to do the traditional um, uh, activities that were important for new venture creation. This, this is the lesson hard learned in the early 2000s. You actually have to talk to customers, figure out what's valuable to them and, you know, craft a compelling offering. Um, that's, uh, that's probably something that, you know, all entrepreneurs will probably uh, pair it back to you. Greetings, Hacker. Ever wonder how to submit stories to Hacker Noon or check the status of your submissions? Well, wonder no more. Go to contribute.hackernoon.com. Whether you're a new writer, longtime contributor, or looking for the right place to spotlight your brand, get started with contribute.hackernoon.com. With your help, we are building Hacker Noon 2.0 to be the best place for tech professionals to publish, and it starts with a new submission flow. Head over to contribute.hackernoon.com today to claim your spot. You are Hacker Noon. And that's a challenge of like all startups, uh, period. So you've got all the, I mean, you've got all the hardships of running a startup and then you've got all the hardships of crypto and now the crypto winter that we're experiencing. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on kind of the crypto winter and how it's affecting you guys right now? So personally, we're, we're definitely not, um, we're personally not affected by crypto winter. As Wayne mentioned, we're uh, focused a lot on enterprise too and seeing where the value can be driven in enterprises. Um, I definitely want to mention too, uh, Related to crypto winter and a lot of the tokens kind of going down in value, obviously none of this is investment advice, but I'm saying like uh, a lot of these tokens don't actually model for subjectivity. Uh, as Wayne mentioned, like where, you know, we could have this perfectly modeled token where the incentives are all right, but what's stopping like actor X on a really, really thin book for token Y from just dumping a ton of capital on that and screwing up the entire system. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we, it's, it's hard to account for these madman attacks because humans are naturally irrational. And all these models assume like complete rationality with all the actors in the system. Yeah. And um, go ahead, Trent. I was just going to say, you know, you know, it just comes back to needing users on these platforms. Um, and that's ultimately, that's ultimately crypto's hardest challenge is how do, you know, how does crypto get adoption? Um, yeah. Any thoughts yeah. there? Yeah, um, actually, I have a huge, um, I have a huge uh, kind of perfection with emerging markets. Uh, now, I'm not an emerging markets expert, and uh, you know the the um, kind of uh, market is you know riddled with failed startups whose founders thought they would know everything about emerging market. You know, oh, we're gonna go to this poor region of the world and uh, solve all their problems because we can. We have the technology, and typically those are very short sighted uh, and don't go very well. In fact, many times they cause a lot of harm. Uh, so uh, I'm just making a disclosure that, you know, like a lot of thought has to go into, um, like, uh, actually deploying something in emerging markets, such as actually having an office there or something like that. But that said, like, uh, that's where a lot of my interest lies because, um, 
I think that uh, we here in the United States are kind of spoiled by uh, very um, well-established institutions. Uh, call them efficient or not, but I, you know, I still trust the bank when they want to give me a mortgage or something, right? Uh, the, the foundation and institutions are relatively stable to some parts of the world, I'd say, right? And uh, because of that, right, because we have this big central um, authority that we trust, and it works really, really well, right? That's one reason why we might not see immediate adoption of some technologies in more established parts of the market because there are people who do it quite well and very well. Uh, for example, like uh, if we look at some of the large centralized exchanges, arguably they're the most successful uh, exchanges out there. You don't see a DEX, you know, coming anywhere close to the volumes that centralized exchanges are doing right now. Mm -hmm. They're able to craft an awesome project. They're able to reduce regulatory risk for the whole project and also the users, um, even help them with tax compliance and issues like that. Um, and it's very difficult for a DEX to uh, do that, um, not to mention, you know, the challenges of trying to scale up on Ethereum uh, and some of the other technologies circa like two or three years ago. Right. So that those are all like new challenges you have to adopt if you want to take this approach. And if there, again, is already a centralized solution that's optimal and you can't do a far better job than they, then, you know, it's very skeptical if a user is actually going to be able to adopt things. You actually you have to find new dimensions of value that you can offer to the user that they think is great or um, you have to just compete uh, toe to toe with existing solutions. So uh, going sort of back to emerging markets like. Um, if there is uh, kind of no infrastructure already, right, minimal, and there is a way that you can basically offer for free um, some kind of a key component of the infrastructure, again, implemented in a very um, informed way, you definitely need to work with people on the ground there who actually have experience with those regions, um, there could be a benefit. Uh, one salient example might be, you know, if you look at uh, an EHR system, electronic health record system, right, they're very, very expensive to install in the United States for a hospital or any kind of physicians group. That's sort of on the order of magnitude of millions of dollars, not to mention maintenance costs and fees, right? And HIPAA compliance and all. Yeah, that. compliance, et cetera. So like, um, it's gonna, like basically the, the decentralized solution is going to have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with everything there, and it's going to have to uh, displace those, um, those uh, incumbents, which are already deeply, deeply rooted, right? And that's very, very difficult. Whereas if you're fighting just non-consumption in an emerging market, you know, that's far more interesting. Um, there are probably many computers in the world at hospitals that are just running Windows XP, right? And nothing special, but like, um, you know, like, uh, but basically there's no budget to install one of these really fancy HR systems, right? So what a decentralized solution might look like here might be just an open source audited computer program that you download. Uh, you figure out some way to validate that that's actually the right source code, everything. This is a big challenge. I'm not saying it's easy. Um, and uh, be able to run this independently. It provides a single terminal that holds electronic health records better than Excel or Word or whatever is in use right now. And also has the added benefit of speaking in an open protocol. So in a secure manner, respecting patient privacy and everything engineered in already, right? Like any other computer that joins the network can have an open line of communication, uh, even if it's a village away or something like that. So like this, I think, is a much more compelling argument for adoption to me. Um, of course, you always have to go boots on the ground, talk to customers and figure out if there's actually demand for it. But like, uh, that's sort of where we're thinking, like, uh, where does the technology actually excel? Well, this would be an example of emergence, which I think has a very, um, you know, um, attractive uh, kind of value proposition.
and one of the things I've kind of been seeing and consulting even with is on P with, you know, different crypto projects is to look at it from kind of a hybrid approach. You know, if you've got a problem that's easily solved with a centralized server or database, use a centralized server and database. Uh, and then if you're building out a decentralized component, build out that decentralized component potentially separately. So scale the stuff that we know how to scale already with existing tech and then build new decentralized tech on top of it uh, and build out that existing, you know, that, you know, build out decentralized tech, you know, on top of that existing infrastructure because you, that's where you create that extra value without necessarily having to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, absolutely agreed. I think that um, it's going to like... Um... There, every engineer knows that there are definitely trade-offs, right? Even uh, like um, engineers from other sectors, like people who work on distributed systems, for example, they are highly cognizant that, you know, like a centralized database is sometimes the best solution, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we see a lot of projects working on Kubernetes, uh, which is uh, supposedly distributing your workload across a bunch of different computers, right? But they'll have a centralized database there uh, because um, they know, the, the engineers know that uh, it's, it does a really, really good job at having asset compliant transactions and things like that, right? Uh, and uh, maybe for like a caching layer, they'll fan out because we can lose some of these nodes and uh, we can regenerate it from the data stores, right? You've uh, got load balancing, you've got all kinds of different tools for scalability. Uh, yep. Yeah, if exactly. you're using Kubernetes, you could literally just deploy different databases for different things. Um, so you know, you've got the, the option to do that with, uh, with DevOps and a good DevOps structure. So it's hard to duplicate that with blockchain. Uh, I haven't quite seen it yet. I think that's a challenge being actively worked on. Um, my point was uh, closer to that, like um, the trade-off is there even in like Web2 technology, so to speak, and that like, um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make some certain trade-offs about uh, reliability to be able to, uh, you know, have a lot of performance or something. And those those um, those information economics are going to stay the same here. I think uh, if you want massive scale, math, massive throughput and transactions, well, you have to accept centralization risk, or you have to wait for some kind of fundamental technology improvement, like shrinking the transistor or far better algorithm. Mm -hmm. And if you, are you guys starting to see a lot of stuff, especially on the Ethereum side? Uh, you know, solutions and projects that are starting to solve some of these scalability issues. Yeah, um, we've even seen like, so, um, uh, well, what do you mean by scalability issue? I'd like to just ask about that. Uh, well, I mean, obviously with Ethereum, you know, you've, you've got gas fees, you've got a variety of different methods of how Ethereum works right now. Uh, your transactions per second uh, are somewhat limited. Um, so there's a couple different approaches uh, of different projects out there that are trying to solve all these different problems. I'm just curious to know if anything has come across your guys's attention uh, so projects um, scaling up like I I think that there are a few parts of it um, being worked on so like what you mentioned before with the tooling right there are some projects that allow you to start uh, deploying immediately like an instance of ethereum uh, such as Kaleido recently which is a partner of Amazon uh, on their AWS partner program I don't know the specifics of that but uh, many projects are making the on-ramp easier for existing companies to uh, at least deploy the technology either staging or production grade and that's a good thing uh, as far as scalability and layer 2 solutions well we're looking at ethereum 2.0 which I think is slated for Q1 is that right Rocco I believe so yeah, well, hopefully, you know, it's always kind of a, a toss up as to when they're actually going to deploy it. 
Yeah, uh, I'm not close to that, but uh, I just like how I think about it fundamentally is like there, there's sort of a production possibility frontier uh, where you trade off consistency for performance, right? On one axis, you have consistency. Another axis, you have performance. There's like a curve that spans between the axes, right? And um, basically, you have to pick a point on there and uh, just kind of make sure that it fits your needs correctly. Yeah, That's a lot of the, uh, so most of the time when we're promising, you know, orders of magnitudes more in transactions, uh, it's going to be the case. We're giving up consistency. We're moving to more centralization risk, which might be okay for your solution. I think it's important not to be dogmatic about it. Yeah. And talking about uh, solutions that are slowly coming out, like uh, even talking about plasma implementations, like what the Loom team has been doing with plasma and, and offering almost as it as like almost as like a service where you have something that's a bit smaller, you know, not as decentralized, so to say, but that's the trade-off, that centralization trade-off is how you get higher speeds and higher throughput. Uh, it eventually notarizes to the public chain, which is, and, and, and you kind of solve that, that area of, you know, maybe your product doesn't need to be totally decentralized, like a game that requires high scalability, but doesn't need like nation state grade censorship resistance. Yeah, and, and like to your point, Rocco, like we, we can look at some of these solutions, like um, if we look at Lightning Network or certain Plasma implementations, like um, you always see that you do add more risk to the system somewhere, right? Like there's no free lunch here. Like uh, you can have sort of uh, like uh, antagonistic nodes add delays to your transactions, things like that. But a good security is always designed like an onion. There are many layers, right? So uh, basically, if we still have transaction signing, if we still reference the same root block, that kind of stuff, then um, you know there there are different levels of guarantees, and we can kind of expect it to degrade in um, in uh, a, a certain manner under attack if you design it properly. Yeah. And we're also talking like, uh, take for example, state channels in Ethereum. So you have a, a company like SpankChain that's deploying state channels. And mm -hmm. they recently had issues with their code because it was at first unaudited. Um, and obviously, if you're you know deploying a state channel solution, it's going through smart contracts. It's not just, we're, we're not just interfacing with the base chain. We're now interfacing with a smart contract on the base chain. Uh, talking about added risk when you have these second layer solutions. Yeah. And so what's kind of next for Alpine and what you guys are doing at Consensus? So for Alpine, um, well, we are um, basically uh, trying to deliver value to our clients. We're trying to help them understand like where this could actually be value uh, valuable in their business. And um, we are uh, working with many excellent groups within Consensus to achieve that. So um, that's one of the nice parts, I think, uh, not to be too pluggy, but like uh, of working with Consensus though, um, they're there are like many um, resources available there. Everything, like if you need an identity solution, if you need uh, some other component, if you need to deploy an Amazon, right? Uh, there, like, uh, there has been a sort of a strategic uh, grouping of our spokes so that uh, hopefully they can come together to form an integrated solution that really drives value. Cool. And I know, Rocker, you were working on some new content strategy and you guys are getting some new information out there. Oh, yeah. So we've been recently uh, kind of building up our own content strategy on Medium, uh, releasing a lot of blog posts like Fire. And recently, uh, our colleague, Steve, we've been developing uh, kind of an R&D experiment on our end. It's uh, called TCR Party, which is a uh, token curated registry. Just think if we uh, basically put the Princeton Review top 100 colleges in the hands of a bunch of token holders and uh, sure. see the kind of list that they curate. Um, but we wanted to test it as a pure popularity contest and see how that would work with uh, Twitter because crypto Twitter is actually quite adversarial. Uh, much akin to uh, blockchains themselves. 
and the entire interface, we're actually experimenting with abstracting the entire blockchain part. So the way you interface with it is through existing controls through Twitter, like you're talking to a bot to uh, nominate people to this list or challenge people who are on this list. And uh, everything is basically auditable on, the t on testnet because we're going to deploy on testnet first, but to see if like, how can we take an existing UX like Twitter and see how a TCR could be built on it. Um, Cause it's also a test of, Hey, even like the if a very large company decides to take the route of a token curated registry, we're literally testing it on one of the most used interfaces in the world through Twitter. So if it doesn't really work on Twitter too well, how will it translate to someone who else, someone else who's trying to deploy it in a way? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, that's, oh, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah, so basically, um, so um, very good test bed, like hopefully, you know, high engagement, talking about that unknown demand function, right? We see that it's a lot of a function of culture and, um, you know, what people like, their habits, et cetera. And uh, if we can uh, make it work uh, here, you know, or not, like that just teaches us a whole lot. And it's very difficult to advise on things when we actually don't have production versions of them running. Mm -hmm. So uh, having that certainty, I know everyone's opinionated about TCRs, you know, some think it's overblown, some think it's the best thing ever. Uh, but like until we actually, you know, trial by fire, it's really difficult to have, um, you know, a conclusive thing. And even just one experiment is not going to be conclusive. If we believe the paradigm is interesting and promising enough, we have to figure out how do we uh, face it towards a different market, a different scenario. Um, basically, like uh, being able to demonstrate, you know, some, some form of a sustainable activity on it. Yeah, and even like kind of tweaking the internal parameters of it as well. So like if we have a successful test run and want to tweak something, so we're very aware that it's highly centralized, you know, what if we add a bit of decentralization in the mix if there's like custody of the actual user of the asset, because right now it runs through multi-sig. So kind of tweaking that and reporting on that. Because a lot of this also translates to consulting engagements so if a business wants to implement this kind of thing. Hey, we've tested this, we've done the work on existing UXs that are widely used. Awesome. Well, you know, this is the Hacker Noon podcast, so I got to ask both of you, what is some time in your life where you've had to hack something? Yeah, so um, I hacked a really large technology company once uh, and uh, basically, uh, I don't know, like uh, found keys somewhere in one of the, you know, execution environments that were supposedly sandboxed and kind of escaped. Um, this was after going to an event, you know, asking about the security about it and being told that it was indeed very secure. And of course, whenever you see that you can start executing whatever code you type into a console in the cloud interface, you have to be a bit suspicious. And uh, that was, I did the Boy Scout thing though, um, got a good vulnerability report. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just very important to be like uh, skeptical about all these systems with their claims about um, security and scalability and really put it to the test, so. <laughs> So just want to walk that back a little bit there. So you found uh, a private securities key in a sandbox environment on a major company's servers, then was able to use that key to get into their system. Yeah. So they had like a free trial thing. It was like this. Um, it's like this thing about analytics and being able to do statistics on their machines, right? So um, you know, uh, this was actually R, and in R you can execute system commands, right? So as soon as you have a Unix terminal up, you're kind of like, hmm where does this Unix terminal go and what are the constraints put on this user, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, and uh, basically um, from there, I discovered that there was a private key that was used to access a master Docker daemon. Mm -hmm. And uh, that means that uh, with this particular deployment, you might've had access to all the servers in the cluster, which are 
huge data stores. So like, uh, didn't want to poke anymore after saw that like, oh, this isn't actually part of the sandbox. Uh, just wanted to work with their security team because I don't want to go to jail. Yeah. So did you did you copy the key and actually log in, or did you say, okay, I found the key, I'm gonna let them know? Yep, I found the key, and it was kind of like I'm gonna let them know about it. Uh, I think any more, you know, gets into the realm of gray stuff I don't talk about on podcasts. Uh, yeah, you're close to that line at that point. Uh, yeah. So because if they yeah, give but, you access to the terminal, that's on them. Like that, they're saying, hey, yeah, you can use this. Um, but uh, if you find something that shouldn't be there, a definite, and then use it to get access, yeah, that, that might be Yeah, thing. because like, if you're gonna recommend like something to a client, because honestly it looks like really cool software that could scale quickly, but mm -hmm. I think it's like a responsible thing to give it a good hard shake to make sure that it's not actually gonna wreck your client because you know, I would feel some kind of responsibility to that. Or your entire server environment if someone got yeah. access to that key. <laughs> yeah, I have a public write-up on it and they put me on their thank you page, so I feel okay talking about it. All right, cool. What about you, Rocco? What's uh, some time you've had to hack something? I, I'm definitely not as interesting. I do not come from an engineering <laughs> background. I'm mostly on a communications background. Uh, I, I honestly, uh, hacking wise, I, I, I think you know, in, in the past, my my. Uh, what's funny is I, you know, I work in this space. I do a lot of communications at a high level of how these systems work. Um, but in, in a past life, uh, currently on my my um, education side it's on digital humanities which is kind of the mashup between uh, any you know anything in the humanities and, and technology and for me it was literature and so kind of I, I, I can't even consider it hacking it's just me kind of hacking it together where uh, I created you know I used to create annotate, annotated versions of uh, literature works that were all kind of interactable um, through a couple different interfaces but like hacking that together is definitely not <laughs> on the level of, of hacking you know they are truly hacking so to speak so i'm definitely i mean i don't know like rocco likes uh james joyce and he gave me one of the books for christmas and like i started reading it and it was kind of like that feeling when you first learn pearl like what is this <laughs> and how come the words can be like this but yeah so, so I, yeah. I think there's a lot of parallel between literature and programming yeah finnegan's way kind of looks like a uh if you took like 20 different coding languages and just put it all on a couple of sheets of paper <laughs> um, I guess another another thing developed was a, a bot that would spit out uh, lines from Finnegan's Wake every hour just to annoy people like it never ends because the book kind of is cyclical and that it repeats the, the last sentence of the book leads into the first sentence of the book. But this is, you know, the kind of small experience I made as, as a communications guy in the development. I mean, I want to get better engineering, but those are the kind of the small experiments I've made on an extremely, extremely uh, microscopic scale. And language is language. I mean, whether it's a spoken human language or a computer programming language, I mean, we call both of them languages. So. Oh, true. And th that's a wonderful point. I think like one of the important paradigms we're going to see in our industry, domain-specific languages, that's going to be huge, right? Mm -hmm. uh, languages. They are basically things that... Um, there are basically things that uh, people in their specific domains can understand and utilize in an effective manner, right? Just like how experts get their own vocabulary. One salient example is um, I heard of one instance where a large bank um, had programmers write in a language called Haskell, which is known to be able to create a lot of these DSLs very easily, domain-specific languages. And uh, effectively, the quants, the analysts, they were using um, these uh, function calls almost like Excel macros. It was something very familiar to them but because it was written in a functional programming language, it was also massively scalable across the whole server farm. 
So they had the simplicity of access of Excel, but you know, they could command a whole cluster of servers to do the computations. So things like this, like how do we empower business users to um, basically just get them exactly what they need to see? They don't need to know what a stack is. They don't need to know like uh, what a pointer is, but just let them do what they want. That's the real importance of crafting a really good language in this ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, and I think we're gonna see more and more languages around blockchain specifically as a technology. Um, we are using, you know, we're using kind of off the shelf programming languages right now. No one has specifically written a programming language for utilizing blockchain yet. Um, so I'm seeing like a lot of projects that are, you know, being written in Go. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of, you know, different program, newer programming languages starting to be used, uh, because they've got additional flexibility that some of the older, older languages just don't have functions for decentralized functions. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what becomes like kind of the de facto decentralized programming language. Uh, yeah, I, I think that has a lot to do with network effects. I don't know who the ultimate winner like 10, 20 years down the road is, but right now I think it's Solidity because if you look at Stack Overflow and everything, right, like huge ecosystem, if you need something, a library, it's been tried, it's been tested before. Um, are there faults with Solidity? Yeah, all programming languages have faults and there are things that we wish were better about, uh, they were better about, right? Like where you might say that, oh, you know, like Solidity makes this difficult. You might say, oh, that formally verifiable language is not approachable to new users, right? Uh, so like uh, figuring, I think that like the ecosystem size is one of the biggest determinants of success. We just see like Java's, you know, rampant success now. And Java 8 is a far different Java than Java 5. Uh, but like basically the ecosystem was able to push it through. Same story for JavaScript. Maybe we should just name the next one, you know, proceeding with Java and then <laughs> it will be the ultimate end all be all. <laughs> but, um, I think as soon as you get like that ecosystem scale, um, that is very attractive to companies because they always know they can hire developers for that because you know there are coding schools for it. Uh, people learn it in their one-on-one classes, all this other stuff. Uh, there are a lot of flywheels moving, and I think it's important to look at that and not just uh, necessarily like, is this um, the best tool I can possibly conceive for the job with all the bells and whistles? Yeah, and arguably that's Ethereum right now in the crypto space. Um, you know, just kind of as a whole, it seems to have the biggest ecosystem around it of developers uh, compared to some of the other projects out there. So, I mean, it's probably EOS is maybe a close second, um, but uh, Ethereum's probably definitely in the lead. So anyways, do you guys have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I just definitely want to touch upon that. Like even as a, a non-developer, what I'm hearing, like taking a Haskell, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. basically Cardano using Haskell and Kadena have using, using Haskell both have become basically the juggernauts in the Haskell space because mm -hmm. now there's more interest on actually developing these things. So they become like slowly becoming the crown jewels uh, for the communities that have formed around these languages. I think it, it depends on who you talk to about that, Rocco, but I can, uh, I can definitely see that from one angle. Um, but same thing, like uh, cryptography, especially, you know, the, the work around zero knowledge proofs, et cetera, et cetera, multi-party compute, that has sort of been an obscure topic until like the rise of crypto put a lot of thought about what this could be used for. So there are definitely some winners in industry from this. Um, yeah. Uh, parting thoughts uh, from me, basically I think, um, I think that uh, a lot of these open networks, these crypto ecosystems, et cetera, whatever you want to call them, you know, they might be the next evolution of open source. Whereas you used to see dead code being slung around server to server, uh, maybe updates to a repo, something like that, right? But uh, this might 
transition to open systems that are always on 24 seven, can't stop them, always accessible, uh, right? And anyone can access them uh, provided they pay a very fair gas fee or something like that, some systems not at all. Uh, that's a really, really interesting paradigm shift when you're basically depending on live systems instead of these libraries that just kind of resuscitate when you need them. And uh, that's a lot of the excitement for me. Yeah, I can see that. Rocco, final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, final thoughts. It's, uh, I guess with this space, it's always important to treat it as both a uh, large revolution in terms of um, figuring out new, new, new uh, value mechanisms, but at the same time, it's all just like one giant science experiment. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's been so much fun at the end of the day that it's this kind of great combination of uh, finance, technology, uh, comedy, and drama. <laughs> and, uh, I feel like everyone should be very on board with kind of the vision, the, the ultimate vision for a lot of this, but at the same time, be very aware of, of uh, what we're experimenting with. And you guys, uh, where's the best place for people to find you? So the best place to find the Alpine team right now as we develop our website is our Medium. Uh, it's medium.com slash Alpine Intel. And uh, personally, uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, at Obstropolis, O-B-S-T-R-O-P-O-L-O-S. I'm on Twitter at, um, at W-Y-C-D-D. -D. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, man. Thanks for having us. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.